Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Paul Cahan, the author of The Homestead Strike. Paul Cahan, author of The Homestead Strike. This book is part of a series that is critical moments in American history. What makes The Homestead Strike a critical moment in American history? That's a great question. Uh, The Homestead Strike is really a turning point in American labor history. Um, You have these two visions about what uh, the American economy is going to be. Is it going to be sort of a cooperative between workers and their employers, or is it going to be employer-dominated? And the Homestead strike really decisively answers that the employees, are, excuse me, the employers are going to be in charge, and the employees are just going to have to take whatever they can get. So it's a real turning point in American labor history. Well, just for people who don't know, when did it take place to set the stage? The uh, Homestead strike took place in the summer of 1892 in Pittsburgh, outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And it was really just sort of one of these events that had been sort of years in the making. You had the convergence of all of these economic and political and individual personalities just coming to a head. And you have this massive explosion of violence, really shocking. Um, And it, it was shocking at the time. There was an assassination attempt. It was really a turning point in American labor history for that reason. So the Homestead plant was a steel mill? Yes. The Homestead plant was the largest uh, of Carnegie's uh, many steel mills. In fact, it was really the crown jewel in Carnegie's steel-producing empire. And it was one that he had purchased. Um, So it was a relatively recent addition to the Carnegie steel empire. And as a result, he inherited this union, the uh, Amalgamated Association of Steel and Iron Workers. And from the moment that he purchased the ironworks, he decided he had to destroy the union. He, one of his supervisors made what he considered to be a bad contract in 1889, and it was a three-year contract. That contract expired in the summer of 1892, and that was the moment where uh, Andrew Carnegie and his right-hand man, Henry Clay Frick, decided that they needed to take decisive action against the union. Were strikes common back then? They were. Um, And as a matter of fact, uh, during the 1870s, 1880s, and 1890s, you had a number of really violent, explosive strikes. Uh, The Haymarket Square riot, uh, there was a national railroad strike that broke out in cities across the eastern seaboard. That turned violent. So Americans were used to a certain amount of violence in their labor confrontations. It's really something that today we're not used to. We're not used to laborers and employers taking up arms against one another, trying to storm the plant. Um, But this was relatively common in the last third of the 19th century. And Homestead, uh, even by the standards of the day, was shockingly violent. Were unions at all similar to the way they are today in that the the members paid dues in and then the union leaders would sit down with the people from the company and 
Yeah, by the time by the time of the homestead strike, uh, unions had really taken on more or less the form that we know them, where you have workers paying dues, generally um, for a small administrative thing, but really to provide services to the workers if there was a strike. It's important to remember this is a period before unemployment. This is a period before uh, really there was a social safety net. So if you went out on strike, you were really on your own. And the unions try to mitigate that by providing at least uh, subsistence survival wages during the strike. But yeah, by the time of the Homestead strike, unions were more or less what we, what we know of them as today. Well, well, when a company and a union would reach a contract, was, did things run smoothly while the contract was enforce or, or Not, were there wildcat strikes? Or? There were some wildcat strikes, although the unions tended to uh, um, try to tamp down on those. The American Association of Steel and Iron Workers was known as a conservative union, which meant that it tried to avoid confrontation with employers. It generally saw itself as a partner with employers. And so the goal was to negotiate a win-win contract. We'll get a few you know, wage increases, we'll get a few reductions in hours, you'll get a steady workforce that you can depend upon. Um, there were more radical unions, certainly, that saw themselves as in conflict with, uh, saw the interests of employers and employees as perpetually in conflict. But that was not the uh, amalgamated association's perspective. And so they would negotiate a contract and there was an expectation that both sides would abide by that contract during its um, during the lifetime of the contract. From the moment that Carnegie's company signed the contract in 1889, frickin' Carnegie began laying plans to undermine the contract, really with a plan of how can we in 1892 break the back of the amalgamated steelworkers union. And so they began, um, they really set it up so they tried to change the date that it would be, the contract would be renewed to the winter so that it would be harder for workers to survive without wages. They stockpiled steel and iron so that they would still be able to service their customers while if there was a, a closing. They did all sorts of really underhanded things to undermine the contract at the homestead strike, particularly to break the union. Now you mentioned Carnegie and Frick. Let's talk about who they are first of all. Sure. Andrew Carnegie. Well, uh, Andrew Carnegie is, I'm sure, a name that most uh, Pennsylvanians, certainly, and Americans know. And he's sort of one of these, you know, great titans of American industry at the end of the 19th century. Uh, really sort of this inspiring story about a guy who comes to the United States from Scotland, bootstraps his way up to being a multimillionaire, and then becomes what he thinks of as the millionaire socialist, giving away millions of dollars for charitable endeavors, mostly uh, libraries. Um, that's what he's famous for. Um, and of course, you know, that's a great story, but the reality was while Carnegie was this self-styled millionaire socialist, he also took an incredibly hard line against organized labor. Um, you could argue that he was a war profiteer. He got his start uh, running the railroads during the Civil War, um, working for the War Department. Uh, he was closely tied with the first Secretary of War, Simon Cameron. Um, and then eventually what he figures out is it's the real money is going to be in providing the railroads with steel. And so in the late 1860s, he begins investing in steel. That's where he makes his real money. And as a result, just becomes, if not the wealthiest man in America, certainly one of the wealthiest men in America. What kind of relationship did he have with his workers? Um, he would have argued he had a fantastic relationship with his workers. I think his workers would have argued that uh, the relationship was more smoke and mirrors. 
that a lot of times Carnegie made promises that ultimately amounted to less than they seemed, that he was, a, uh, he was willing to employ ruthless uh, managers so that he could distance himself from the decisions. He could say, oh, well, that's not me that's making this decision. It's my, it's my manager. You need to go talk to him. And Henry Clay Frick, of course, fit that bill to a T. Well, I want to get back to Andrew Carnegie. You said one of his defects was his callousness toward other people's suffering. During the Depression of 1873, when unemployment hovered around 25%, Carnegie actually complained to a friend that he had to step over the homeless to get into his New York office. And I think that's a, that's a perfect illustration of Andrew Carnegie's callousness. He wanted, Carnegie was very self-conscious about his public image. And so he was very careful to present himself as the working man's friend in public. But you read his private correspondence, and he totally unselfconsciously makes statements like that. Um, and there's, there's another story in the book about one of his, uh, his mentor actually hit some economic trouble during the Panic of 1873 and overinvested in railroads and as a result needed uh, to borrow some money from Carnegie and said, hey, can you lend me some money? And Carnegie said, no. No, people need to, to, to do for themselves. And this was a good friend of his that he absolutely refused to bail out in this moment of dire need. But he thought of himself as a friend of the workers. But he thought of himself as a friend of the workers, which is one of these, you know, sort of great moments of self-delusion. I'm sure we'll talk about it later in the program, but, you know, after, when he's writing his memoirs, he's trying to recast himself as the friend of the working men, and he spends uh, hours looking for this telegram that he imagined the workers had sent him, beseeching him to come back and, and save them from the tyrant Henry Clay Frick. Well, no such telegram ever existed, but it didn't stop him from writing about it in his memoirs. So, you know, this is, you know, Carnegie's capacity for self-delusion was really legendary. You also say that perhaps Carnegie's greatest flaw was his legendary vanity. Yes. And, you know, and that sort of flows into the self-deception. Carnegie actually believed in his heart of hearts that he was this millionaire socialist, that he was the working man's friend, but his track record tells a radically different story. And so when you read his memoirs, it's, the memoirs are really a testament to his vanity to his belief that he pulled himself up by his bootstraps, that when he got to the pinnacle of economic power, he turned around and, you know, was a friend of the working man. Oh, I gave them these libraries. You know, I gave them all the tools to pull themselves up. Any man could become what I became, never recognizing along the way that he got helping hands along the way. You know, were it not for the Civil War, was it not for uh, friends along the way, there's no way Andrew Carnegie would have become a millionaire, let alone the millionaire socialist. You also say between 1878 and 1898, Carnegie cut the price of producing steel rails at Edgar Compson Steel by 66%, largely by forcing down the cost of labor, either through outright wage cuts or the purchase of machinery that eliminated jobs. Absolutely, and that was part and parcel of his strategy. Carnegie really cornered the market in steel production by underselling his competitors. And that's an important part of the context that, you know, I think your viewers need to understand that at the end of the 19th century, the federal government was incredibly small and the regulatory devices that are there to ensure that uh, uh, competition and a healthy marketplace just didn't exist. There was no uh, uh, real antitrust uh, um, legislation and the antitrust legislation that existed really wasn't enforced. In fact, ironically, it was enforced against labor unions. So to a certain extent, guys like Carnegie could corner the market in the production of a material and then use their 
heft in the market to squeeze out all their competitors. And one of the ways that he did that was underselling his, his competitors. And to do that, he ruthlessly slashed wages. Whenever Carnegie bought a new production plant or upgraded a production plant, you could be sure wages were going to be cut. And in fact, wages in 1892, when adjusted for inflation, were actually below wages in the 1870s. It's really kind of shocking. What was it like to work in one of uh, Andrew Carnegie's steel mills? Awful. Totally, totally awful. I mean, Pittsburgh at the time was described as hell with the lid off. And you have to imagine that you're approaching Pittsburgh from miles away on a train and all you see is this soot and this flame that's just, you know, illuminating the city skyline. I had a very good friend um, that uh, was a teacher in high school. His father lived in Pittsburgh in the 1920s and 30s. And he, his father used to tell stories about how the kids would have to come home from school at lunchtime and change their shirts because the soot would stain the white shirts, and so they always had two shirts. And I think it gives you a sense of what that environment was like. You imagine being in these uh, uh, steel mills where the temperature is incredibly hot. I mean, we're talking hundreds and hundreds of degrees, literally working 12-hour shifts. You know, uh, uh, at the when you're when you're finished, you're wringing out your shoes because they're so full of sweat, um, and it was incredibly dangerous. One of worker, one of uh, Carnegie's managers, was actually killed in an industrial accident where workers spilled molten iron on top of him, and he was severely burned. He lived for two or three days in incredible agony before finally dying. These sorts of industrial accidents were common, and again, there was no sort of social safety net. You know, frequently a worker would be killed and his body would be dropped off at the, uh, uh, his home, which was your, normally company provided housing. And that was a sign that the wife and children had two or three days to get out because, you know, we're going to put a new worker in there and you're no longer going to have a place to live. So it was really a devastating, awful sort of working environment. What kind of wages did they make? I mean, could they live a, a life, raise a family? It was starvation wages, you know, and, you know, we have to be careful about making blanket statements. It, there's, um, there were really two tiers of labor in these steel mills. You had the skilled labor and the unskilled labor. Unskilled labor tended to be recent immigrants. They tended to be people without the language skills or without the technical education to really demand higher wages. Um, for the skilled workers, wages could be a little bit better but no one was going to get rich working for Carnegie. And both Carnegie and Frick were dedicated to breaking the backs of the uh, uh, skilled workers' unions to lower those wages. And one of the ways that you do that is to break a job into its constituent parts so that you don't need a skilled worker. You don't need a skilled worker to, excuse me, um, uh, uh, puddle the iron. You don't need a skill worker to shape the iron. You can break it down into its individual parts and then you can get basically anyone to do it. And that was one of the strategies that industrialists like Frick and Carnegie used to really break uh, their skilled workers unions back. We didn't talk about Henry Clay Frick much. Oh yes. One of the great characters of American industrial history. My guess would be that many of your viewers don't know much about Frick. Certainly those in Pittsburgh uh, know of the Frick Museum, Frick Park. Um, but Henry Clay Frick has sort of receded into the memory of American history. And that's no accident. In his time, Frick was considered to be a tyrant. He was considered to be, um, you know, for lack of a better word, a bastard. I mean, he's just an awful, 
awful manager. And he reveled in that, in that reputation. I mean, he really saw himself as, you know, I'm here to maximize profits. He was, he was in the words of uh, one biographer, the perfect capitalist. And he was just there to maximize profits. And his reputation was so bad that for years the family threatened to sue anyone who wrote a biography of him lest, you know, uh, they wanted people to sort of forget about him because his reputation was so bad. And Carnegie was more than willing to let Frick be the bad guy in this story. Um, as, again, you know, Carnegie was very worried about his public, and, uh, public face and Frick didn't care. Well, you say about Frick that uh, he earned a reputation as a hard boss who was viscerally anti-labor. Undoubtedly, his reputation stemmed in part from the fact that he actively cheated his workers. And you also say, in an industry characterized by shady business practices, he earned himself a reputation as being the Coke industry's cruelest employer. Henry Clay Frick made his money in uh, processing Coke, which is a form of very hot-burning coal. He used some money that he had borrowed from family members to set up in the uh, coal regions outside of Pittsburgh. And what he did was he paid by the pound. But of course, he was the one measuring how much coal you had produced in the day. So he quickly earned a reputation for cheating his workers. But again, if you're a coal miner and this guy's bought up 85% of the coal lands, the likelihood is you're going to end up working for him. And he was totally ruthless. Um, there's this great story about him showing up at the house of one of his colliers who uh, hadn't produced as much coal as Frick wanted. He showed up with the local sheriff. They grabbed the guy, threw him out the back door of his own house, threw out his possessions into the river behind it, and moved a new family in. And you know, basically said, if you show up again, we're going to shoot you. I mean, this is the sort of uh, uh, business practice uh, that Henry Clay Frick engaged in. And once he joined, partnered with Carnegie, Carnegie bought an interest in Frick's Coke enterprise, and Frick in turn bought an interest in uh, Carnegie's steel enterprise. Because of course, they needed one another. Carnegie was Frick's greatest customer. Frick could provide Carnegie with the raw materials to keep his business going. So it was really a symmetry of interests. And once they became partners, Carnegie saw the advantages of having Frick be the public face of the company, that he was willing to do the ruthless thing that was needed to realize Carnegie's goals, which was always pushing down prices to increase profit. How did they get along? Um, initially, they got along okay, in large part because Frick was willing to play the role of the bad guy. But the Homestead strike uh, really sows the seeds of the breakdown of their partnership. Because, quite frankly, Carnegie sells Frick out. Carnegie is in Scotland when uh, the strike breaks out, and that's no accident. He wants to be out of the country so that he can maintain plausible deniability. So he's in Scotland at his summer castle, um, but he's in very close contact with Frick, and Frick is executing a plan they had come up with. But in the aftermath of the Homestead strike, when public opinion really turned against Carnegie, Carnegie tried to play it off as if he had very nothing to do with this. He said, oh, well, you know, you're going to have to go talk to Henry Clay Frick. He's the one that's involved in this. I have nothing to do with the public, with, with, with the company's actions. And this really annoyed Frick. Not so much be, he could, because he cared about public relations. He didn't. But because he saw that Carnegie was trying to have his cake and eat it, too. And that really irritated Frick. And then over the next five or six years, their relationship continued to... Um, 
basically to a road to the point where Frick threatened to sue Carnegie because he thought Carnegie was cheating him. Carnegie forced him out as president of the company. And, you know, really their last communication as they were both dying was Carnegie reaching out to Frick and saying, you know, we're both dying, you know, maybe we should bury the hatchet. And Frick said, I'll, I'll see you in hell. So there was, there was no love lost by the end. You do say, um, interesting side note, uh, Frick's maternal grandfather was Abraham Overholt, who amassed a fortune through his Overholt whiskey distillery. And you can still see old Overholt yes. in, in liquor stores. Um, I want to read this other uh, Henry Clay Frick thing. In 1890, trouble loomed at Edgar Thompson, the mill in Pittsburgh. Uh, Charles Schwab, who was president of the company at the time, argued that the men's demands should be seriously examined, given that the furnace output at Edgar Thompson had increased between 25 and 30 percent, but Frick dismissed it. He had no intention of raising wages or returning to the eight-hour shift. While doing so would have cost the company slightly more than $28,000, 0.006% of the profits the company generated that year. Yeah, um, it's, it's kind of interesting. Schwab is kind of one of these interesting characters. He eventually takes over the Carnegie companies after, the, uh, you know, after Frick leaves. But he's sort of a technocrat. You know, he's a numbers guy. He's very much a different generation than either Carnegie or uh, Frick. And he takes a very different view. Not that he's not a hard-nosed businessman. He is. But he's much more modern in the sense that he says, look, if it costs us $28,000, but we don't have any labor uprisings, that's worth something. And Frick's attitude is no, absolutely not. You know, that 0.0006% profit is something that we earned. If we, get, you know, if we give the workers, you know, that 0.006% increase, the next thing you know, they'll be demanding the presidency of the company. And that was always his attitude. His attitude was never compromise, always draw a firm line, absolutely no give backs. And so in that sense, he was a very effective uh, maximizer of profit. He was exactly what Carnegie was looking for in the early 1890s. Um, but by the turn of the century, I think he was really sort of out of step with where the rest of the world was going. What would he have been like to be around? Um, that's an interesting question, and it's one of the great mysteries of dealing with this. We know a lot about Carnegie. There have been innumerable biographies of Carnegie. Carnegie writes his own memoirs. He, try to, he tries to shape the memory of what it was like. Frick is much more elusive. Frick is much more difficult to get at, in large part because he doesn't care about public relations. He doesn't care about how he's remembered. He sees his goal as to maximize profit and do what's right for this company. But in general, I mean, he was a devoted family man. He was an incredibly intense, driven person, not just from his employees, but from himself. Um, you know, at one point, there's an assassination attempt, and he's actually shot um, and stabbed. And he has the doctor come in, sew him up, and he immediately goes right back to work. I mean, this is the sort of mentality that you're dealing with. The kind of man that can demand that of himself is going to be a very demanding taskmaster for the rest of his workforce. And so I would imagine that to his friends, he was, you know, an okay guy to be around. To work for him, I think, would have been incredibly difficult. Well, before we get into the, the homeless strike itself, a little bit about you. Sure. Your, what do you do for your day job? Well, I'm a, a professor of history at Ohlone College in Fremont, California. And I'm also a writer. Uh, I've written, I've published three books, and I have two more coming out, uh, one later this year and one in the spring of 2016.
What do you teach when you teach? Uh, I teach a variety of courses, mostly U.S. history, but I do teach some world history and some Western Civ. Do you have a favorite aspect of history that you teach? Uh, I do. I love teaching the 19th century. Um, really everything from the ratification of the Constitution up through the beginning of World War I. Uh, but my particular areas of interest are Jacksonianism, the Civil War, and the post-Civil War era, where I see a lot of uh, echoes of the world we live in today. So take us to 1892 Pittsburgh and the Homestead Mill. Now, uh, again, how long had the mill been there? What kind of products did it make? Sure, sure. So the Homestead Steelworks uh, was built at the end of the 1870s and had operated really sort of at a loss for a number of years when Carnegie scooped it up in the uh, late 1880s. Uh, an incredibly important part of this context is to recognize that after the Civil War, the United States goes through a period that's called the Gilded Age, where you have this sort of very pleasant facade, but really there's a lot of anxiety and corruption and a lot of despair. Um, and in large part, it has to do with the fact that the number of years of economic growth after the Civil War are actually lower than the number of years of economic contraction. And so workers' wages by the 1890s are actually below where they were in the 1870s. Um, you've had massive waves of immigrants, which meant that the labor force has swelled, even though the number of jobs hasn't gone up. So if you're at the bottom of the, so the pecking order, things are getting worse for you. And so as a result, you know, there's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of economic upheaval. There's a lot of political upheaval. And you can't understand the homestead strike unless you understand all of that. And one of the things that you begin seeing is a very harsh reaction among the political and economic elites. You know, we've really got to do something about this. You know, uh, as I mentioned earlier, there are a number of labor uprisings that are, get tied to anarchism. So the Great Railroad Strike, um, the Haymarket Square Riot, all of these events convince people that we really need to come down on these labor organizations really harshly because if we don't uh, the country is just going to go to hell in a handbasket. So that's the context of what's going on when we get to the homestead strike. Uh, you have the expiration of this contract that was signed in 1889 and Frick and Carnegie had no intention of negotiating a new contract. They really decided we're gonna make our stand at this particular moment. So Carnegie goes to the, or excuse me, Frick goes to the Union and he says look Here's what we're going to do. We're going to reduce the wages, and we're going to change the negotiation period from the summer to the dead of winter. Now, if you're a worker living in western Pennsylvania, you want to go on strike in summer because, of course, it's easy, food is cheaper. You don't need to heat your house. You know, um, It's much easier to survive than in a Pittsburgh winter when you can't afford coal, when you can't afford food, you know, so the last thing you want is to change the negotiation period to December and to deal with a cut in wages on top of that. You know, the union comes back with a very reasonable proposal, says we can't do that, and Frick says there's not going to be any negotiation. And really from the beginning, um, Frick signals that he's not interested in them accepting the deal anyway. Um, shortly before the contract period uh, ends, Car uh, Frick posts a notice that he'll only deal with workers as individuals. He won't negotiate with the union. And then uh, he builds this giant fence around the plant. 
And what that signals is, I have no expectation that you're going to be coming back to work. What's going to happen is there's going to be a confrontation. And the geography of this is really, really important. The steelworks is built along the river. So one, about half of it is along this river, which allows barges to come and deliver things, but it's up on a hill. So there's this railroad track that you can take, um, you know, sort of small mining cars up the hill on this track and take it to the, uh, the works. He builds a fence all around it up to the banks of the river to prevent the workers from getting back in. And he shuts down the plant, allegedly so that he can upgrade equipment. But really what he says is, we're locking you out and I'm going to bring in uh, people to replace you. So of course, this riles the workers up. And the confrontation takes place when Frick sends two boats of Pinkerton uh, detectives, detectives uh, down on barges and they try to uh, get off the boats, walk up the hill, and get into the plant to protect it. Now I should say a word about the Pinkertons. The Pinkertons were allegedly a detective force. They had been founded by Alan Pinkerton, who had gained fame uh, protecting Abraham Lincoln in the lead up to Lincoln's inauguration. By the 1870s, 1880s, increasingly they were being used less as detectives and more as a private police force, as strike breakers essentially. So what would happen is you own a company, your workers go out and strike, you'd call in the Pinkertons to protect your factory, they'd show up with guns and knives and basically a confrontation would ensue. And you were trying to actually provoke a confrontation with the idea being that, you know, the Pinkertons would put down your workers and force them to come back to the negotiation. Well, you can imagine, you know, uh, um, the Pinkertons show up at Homestead and the workers just go berserk. And so as a result, the workers show up and crowd around the top of this hill and you know the, the Pinkertons try to get off their boat, and no one's quite sure who fired the first shot, whether it was the Pinkertons, whether it was the workers, but in any event, the shooting starts, and the workers just start throwing bricks, they start firing. At one point, they set a train car on fire, they push it down the train tracks with the idea that it'll hit the barges and blow the barges up. It's, it's just out of control. And uh, we should say something about the Pinkertons. The Pinkertons are not a highly disciplined military force. These are basically homeless people that the Pinkerton agency had sort of dragooned from the streets of Philadelphia, from the streets of New York, and basically, you know, we'll pay you a dollar and give you a, a, you know, a uniform and a gun, and basically we're going to send you down here to do this. So it's really the, you know, as I think one historian described it, a confrontation between the have-littles and the have-nothings. And that really, I think, is a great metaphor for industrial relations at this time. You have these puppet masters like Carnegie and Frick basically pitting the have-littles and the have-nothings and trying to figure out who's going to win. Did Carnegie and Frick expect the violence to happen? Oh, absolutely. They f that, and that's why they dispatched the Pinkertons. You know, uh, the Pinkertons show up with Winchester rifles. There is every expectation that there is going to be violence. And, you know, they are a private military force, even though, you know, they're essentially, you know, guys that are just sort of dragooned from the streets. They're armed, they're ready to go, and the expectation is they are going to take these works back by force. You say in the book that when they put up the fence around the plant, they put in uh, holes in the fence to purchase perfect for a rifle. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, there is, there is no doubt from Carnegie's correspondence, and particularly from Frick's, 
uh, correspondence that they were anticipating violence, and they fully expected violence. And I think Carnegie figured that he would be able to spin this in the public mind that, you know, uh, um, you know these these ruffian workers were demanding rights that they weren't entitled to. They were trying to steal, you know, his hard-earned money, and I I had no choice but to bring in the forces of law and order. And at least initially, that's not how the story gets written. Um, now I should say a word about the Pinkertons. You know, the Pinkertons often get painted as the bad guys in this story, but it's important to recognize that you know these are starving guys that are just trying to feed their families. They really don't have any idea what they're being sent to do. You know, they're shipped into Pittsburgh by railroad, they're packed onto these boats, uh, they're given their uniforms, and off they go. They have no idea who they're fighting for, they have no idea what really they're fighting for, they just know they're going to get paid. And so at various points throughout the morning while this fighting is going on, they try to surrender, you know, because the wages you're paying are just not worth it. And they really become the focal point of the workers' anger. Because, of course, you can't stone Henry Clay Frick, you can't throw bricks at, at Andrew Carnegie, but you can fire at these guys. And so, you know, in a lot of ways, I think that's the great tragedy of the Homestead Strike, is that, you know, the guys who end up doing the bleeding, the guys who end up doing the, 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 the dying, are not Carnegie and Frick, who set this whole thing in motion, but it's really two groups of people who have more in common than either of them was willing to recognize at the time. Why did public opinion matter to Clay and Frick? Well, Clay didn't care. As far as Clay was concerned, I as mean, long Carnegie as and yeah, Frick. <laughs> as far as Clay was as, as far as Frick was concerned, as long as profits were good, that's all that mattered. Carnegie is a, an incredibly vain person, and he has Carnegie's capacity for self-delusion is just legendary, is unbelievable. He really sees himself as, and I keep using this phrase, it's a phrase he used, the millionaire socialist. He really believed that he was amassing this wealth um, because you know, he was gonna be an instrument for social good. But part of being an instrument for social good was you know, teaching these workers who really don't know how to behave themselves how to act like civilized human beings. And so that's why you know, he, he won't loan them money, he won't you know, provide housing, but I'll build them a library. So after working 12 hours in this sweltering steel factory, they can go read the classics and you know, sort of pull themselves up by, them, by their bootstraps. And he sees the homestead, you know, he sees what happens in homestead as really a blow to that self-image, as it was. And there are some great political cartoons in the book that show, you know, how cartoonists point to the hypocrisy of Carnegie the philanthropist and Carnegie the ruthless strike breaker. And that was really quite devastating for him. You know, in addition, 1892 is a presidential election year, and the Republicans are watching what's going on and sort of, you know, saying, guys, you can't, you, you can't do this. We can't have this massive labor uprising, uh, you know, uh, in a very closely, you know, what was expected to be an incredibly tight presidential race. In 1892, Benjamin Harrison, the incumbent, was facing off against Grover Cleveland, who he had defeated in 1888. Grover Cleveland had been president between 1885 and 1889. So this was like a matchup, and Harrison had only very narrowly won in the Electoral College. He'd actually lost the popular vote. So any sort of labor uprising might tip, you know, sort of on-the-fence Republicans to vote Democratic. So it was an incredibly concerning, 
you know, series of events. And in the lead up to this, you have prominent Republicans, you know, contacting Carnegie and Frick and basically saying, you need to, you need to settle this. You know, it's good for the party, it's good for us. And Carnegie and Frick were both very well connected to the Republican Party. Now, Carnegie is much more sympathetic to that, seeing as he does a lot of business from the federal government. Frick says, I don't care. My goal is to maximize profit. You know, you guys run the government. And uh, White, Law, White Law Reed, who um, is an editor of a very prominent uh, New York newspaper and ultimately becomes the vice presidential candidate for the Republicans, is screaming at these guys. You've got to stop this. You've got to stop this. You can't have this going on. And, and Frick says no. Did the federal government have any clout to stop it? Um, I mean, Harrison makes noises that he'll cut off patronage in the state of Pennsylvania, but Frick doesn't care. You know, the Navy Department makes some noises that they might not renew their armor plating contract with Carnegie Steel. Frick calls their bluff. He says, you know, there's no one else that can do this on the scale that we do. Go ahead. Um, so, you know, to a certain extent, they really don't. Congress does investigate uh, what happens at Homestead shortly after the events, and they hold these hearings, and the, the hearings are amazing for just the insight they give. It's really the only moment where Carnegie gets up, or excuse me, where Frick gets up and, and says his piece. And if you read his testimony, it's arrogant, it's condescending, and it's basically like, who are you to tell me how to run my business? And that was very much his attitude. And I think it points to the fact that the federal government had no power, really. The state government had no power, really, other than the use of the state militia. And ultimately, the Democratic governor of the state of Pennsylvania, Robert Pattinson, puts the state militia behind Carnegie and Frick and ultimately throws the power of the state behind, uh, against the workers and behind Carnegie. So I guess the short answer to your question is no, not really. And Carnegie and Frick know that, and that's why the use of this private militia, the, the Pinkertons, is so devastating. How did the violence end that day or on those days? If you were on, if you were in Homestead the, the day that the Pinkertons were repulsed, you would have thought the workers had won a very uh, uh, decisive victory. You would have thought this fight was over, the Pinkertons had been repulsed, um, they were captured, they were taken to uh, Homestead's Opera House, and they were basically packed on a train later that night and sent away. Um, and then if you read the newspapers the following day, you would see a lot of sympathy for the strikers. And in fact, in the days after the strike, it really looked as though Carnegie and Frick had stepped in it, that they had uh, underestimated the amount of public sympathy for the strikers. And then you have this unbelievable turning point when an anarchist by the name of Alexander Berkman uh, rides the train out from New York City and tries to assassinate Henry Clay Frick. He shows up at Frick's office pretending to be a salesman or a, 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 basically a headhunter. And he pushes his way into Frick's office and tries to shoot Frick. Um, and he ends up only wounding Frick. So then he pulls out a knife and stabs Frick um, before he's wrestled to the ground and basically clubbed and dragged out. And then as I suggested, Frick's assistant passes out from the tension. But Frick uh, basically gets himself sewn up and goes right back to work. He sends a telegram to Carnegie that says, you know, I've been shot, I've been stabbed, but I'm back at my desk and I'm ready to go. And that, more than anything else, is what uh, 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 grabs defeat from the jaws of victory 
for the unionists. Because if there's one thing that concerns Americans in this period, it's anarchists. You know, um, you know there's this fear of anarchism. It's, it's somewhat akin to the fear of communism in the 1950s, that there are anarchists behind every wall. What did they believe in? Anarchists? Uh, they believed in, you know, uh, I mean, there are a variety of strains of anarchism, but essentially they were, you know, opposed to big corporations. They were opposed to government power. They were, you know, you could argue that they were nihilists. They, they believed in nothing. They believed in, you know, uh, uh, basically a utopia where uh, there was no need for government and there were certainly no corporations who many of them, Berkman included, saw as really in control of the government. And that was a very popular opinion. I mean, you know, there were people who weren't anarchists who saw um, the government as being in the pockets of the big corporations. But, you know, this really turns the tide. People that had been on the fence, that had been uh, shocked by the violence at Homestead, saw in Berkman's actions, you know, what they saw as the real face of this. They, you know, uh, and, and Frick wasted no time in tarring the union as, as, as anarchists and as opposed to private property and communists and socialists, basically every ist you could possibly throw on the table, that's the union. Was there any truth to it? Was there any connection between the union and the no, anarchists? No, there was no connection between the amalgamated association. As I, you know, as I said earlier, they're an incredibly conservative union. These are not guys who are trying to tear down corporations. These are guys who are arguing, hey, capitalism works better if we're partners. You know, a rising tide will take all boats. If we share the fruits of industrial produce, you'll have more workers, you'll have more, uh, um, you'll have more clients, you'll, you know, everybody can, can really survive. It's a very conservative sort of perspective. And they're as appalled by Berkman's actions as anyone. I mean, the, the union is not calling for, you know, assassination attempts. And they immediately try to distance themselves. But... Frick and Carnegie are very adept at manipulating public opinion after Berkman's assa assassination attempt. And it's, you know, and Berkman's totally unrepentant. I mean, he writes his memoirs um, uh, about 15 years later when he's released from Western State Penitentiary, and he's still talking about how if only he had killed uh, uh, Frick, everything would have been fine, and that Frick really needed to die, and then the workers would have risen up. And, you know, he's as delusional as Carnegie was about being this millionaire socialist. So, uh, did the how long before the plant reopened? I mean, at some point the plant reopened and people went back to work. So basically, what happens is the uh, governor of Pennsylvania, under enormous pressure, sends the state militia in, and the state militia had been embarrassed during the railroad strikes uh, in previous decades. So it had really risen to a level of professionalism and military discipline that was really unheard of for state militias. Uh, the Keystone State Militia was really uh, probably one of the best trained, best armed, and uh, best disciplined of the state militias by the time of the Homestead Strike. Is that now the equivalent of the National Guard? It or is. Or the state? It is. Uh, those, those units eventually become folded into the National Guard. Um, but in this period, you know, the, the, the state governor, this was essentially the governor's private army, and, you know, he dispatches them basically to restore peace to Homestead. And, you know, the commanding general of, uh, of the militia shows up and sets the tone immediately. You know, the, the workers of Homestead meet the militia coming in on the trains. And they have a big band and they're, you know, they're happy because they believe the state government is finally going to line up behind them. And the general gets off the train and he says, I'm here to restore order. 
and the the the, the union uh, leadership says, oh, we've restored order. Thank you for coming. And he says, no, you haven't. You've been behaving very poorly, and I'm not going to tolerate it anymore. And it's from that moment that the union realizes, essentially, the struggle is lost. Very soon after uh, the militia enters Homestead, the works are reopened. You start getting scab laborers, essentially uh, uh, workers, non-union workers that are hired to break a strike. And you know, over the the next few months, as the weather turns colder, the union begin members of the union begin filtering back, and Frick mandates that any man hired at Homestead cannot um, be a member of the union. The union's leadership will not be rehired. Uh, if you are hired, you're going to sign an individual contract. And basically what Carnegie and Frick do is blackball the entire leadership of the Amalgamated Association of Steel and Iron Workers. They never work in the iron industry ever again. Does the union, that union go away, or does it, it still operate in other mills? For all intents and purposes, by the end of the decade, uh, the Amalgamated Association's done. I mean, it goes from, it, it suffers a massive decline in, in, in uh, workers over the next five years, and by, the 1900, by 1900, it exists only in name, only. I mean, it, it, had, it just doesn't have the clout that it used to have. You know, and this is an astonishing, uh, astonishingly, astonishingly quick decline for a union that, at 18, in 1892, was at the pinnacle of its power and was widely seen as the most powerful union in the iron and steel industry in the United States. I mean, Carnegie and Frick ruthlessly break this union and in so doing essentially break unionism in the iron and steel industry. Well, I have to back up a minute. It, did I read it right that when uh, when people were anticipating this confrontation at, at Homestead there was a, a group of spectators? I mean there was oh, yes. an audience came to watch? Oh absolutely. I mean you had people take the train out from Pittsburgh and you know want to see this and you know it's sort of it's sort of ghastly almost it, it's it's reminiscent of the early battles of the civil war where you know people from washington would take the train out to these these nearby battlefields and have a picnic lunch while this slaughter is going on and i can't overemphasize the degree to which this is a a, a battle between you know essentially two gangs of gun wielding people fighting over an incredibly small patch of land people die people are injured but yeah, spectators come out and watch that. And in fact, the earliest reports that appear in the newspaper come from spectators who had gone out to see this. And the descriptions are, are absolutely appalling. You have some uh, newspaper coverage in the back of your book, mm -hmm. uh, among other things. What, what was it like to read the newspapers of the day? And were there pro-union or pro-company newspapers and anti-company newspapers? Yeah, I'm, and thank you for bringing that up. That's a very important point in this context. We live in an era where... Uh, not so much anymore, but 20 or 30 years ago, you had sort of an objective news media. You know, there was a nonpartisan news media. Uh, NBC, CBS, these guys tried to give you both sides of the struggle. Uh, you know, at the, in the 1890s, newspapers are incredibly partisan. They're, they make no appeal to objectivity. You know, um, you know, even today, newspapers that have been in business 110, 150 years, you know, the Harrisburg Democrat or the Philadelphia Republican, you know, it's, it's, a, it's reminiscent of their affiliations with a political party. And in this period, those affiliations were incredibly important. If you were a Democrat in Philadelphia, you read the local Democratic paper. If you were a, a Republican in Philadelphia, you, led, you read the local Republican paper. And so as a result, these partisan newspapers had very different perspectives 
on their coverage. Some, you know, writing articles that showed the union in an incredibly negative light, others writing political cartoons that showed Carnegie and Frick in an incredibly negative light. And so there is this struggle that's very partisan for public opinion. Sort of like uh, Fox News and MSNBC today. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, but even more so, because nowadays, you know, there are so many outlets for news. You know, oh, you don't like MSNBC, you don't like Fox News, you can get on the internet and read some guy's blog who has a totally different perspective. In this period, you know, you might only have two local newspapers, the Democratic and the Republican. So you're getting your news strictly from one or the other. And so you're going to have a very myopic view of the events at Homestead. Were there anyone charged with crimes as a result of this? There were. Uh, as a matter of fact, the leadership of uh, the Amalgamated Association was actually rather outrageously, you know, uh, charged with treason. Um, there were some murder charges. Um, you know, they demand that Henry Clay Frick be indicted for murder. And, you know, basically what happens is the companies uh, got lawyers managed to get these charges dismissed. The Amalgamated Association, nobody ends up being convicted, but there are trials. And, you know, I think what happens is as this drags on and as, you know, the dust sort of begins settling and people realize that, you know, this is, you know, this is over and the workers are beginning returning to work, um, those, those charges sort of go away. You know, there's no real appetite for dragging this out any further. But that's not to say that there isn't damage long-lasting. I mean, the president of the American, uh, uh, the AA, the Amalgamated Association of Steel and Iron Workers, uh, who had been mayor of the town, ends up, you know, resigning his position and ends up, you know, in Mexico as a silver miner, basically scratching out an existence because he had been blackballed from the steelworking um, companies. That was John McLucky? Yes. Well, you say in here, and I don't know if I have a note of that, where Andrew Carnegie claims that he set up John McLucky in business and he got wealthy as a result. Yeah. Um, one of the things you need, to, you need to understand about dealing with Carnegie is, and I think that we've made this point, is Carnegie's incredibly vain. And so after Carnegie sells his company um, to J.P. Morgan, it becomes U.S. Steel, Carnegie decides to go about rehabilitating his reputation. And so what he does is he writes his memoirs. And his memoirs are perhaps the most self-serving document you could imagine that are designed to just reinforce, oh, you know, I cared about my workers. Oh, you know, uh, I was the millionaire socialist. You know, and, and you're smiling. You get a sense of, you know, how this is sort of goes. Homestead is a really problematic event for Carney because it really leaves a black eye on his reputation. Does it tarnish his image oh, at it the does. time? Oh, it does. It tarnishes his image at the time and tarnishes, tarnishes his image moving forward. So he does a couple of things to sort of, you know, try to recoup his good graces. One is, you know, he says, well, look, I was in Scotland at the time this happened. I didn't really have anything to do with it. He was in Scotland, but he was in very close contact by telegram with Henry Clay Frick. He claims that at one point the workers uh, in the middle of this battle um, send him a telegram that beseeches him to come back and, and take over negotiations because we know you'll be the good guy and you'll rein Frick in and we can trust you. So he actually has his assistant who's helping him write this autobiography look in his personal archives for this telegram. And the assistant spends hours and days trying to find this telegram. There is no record of this telegram. There's no record uh, 
with the Telegram company that it was ever sent. There's no record it was ever received. They can't find the Telegram. Carnegie still puts it in his memoirs, as if this actually happened. Um, so, you know, he tries to rehabilitate his image that way. And there's this great story where he claims that a friend of his travels to Mexico and meets McLucky. And McLucky's down on his luck. He's struggling. He's basically on the edge of starvation. And this friend telegraphs uh, Carnegie and says, God, you know, you got to do something for this guy. And Carnegie, out of his beneficence and his just his sense of, you know, uh, human interest, says, okay, well, I'll telegram, I'll wire you some money, give it to McLucky, but don't tell him that I gave it to him. And, of course, this guy does this, but he says, you know, uh, uh, to McLucky, well, this came from Andrew Carnegie. And McLucky takes the money and says, well, that was mighty white of Andrew, of, of old Andy. Now, whether or not this actually happened is certainly debatable. Uh, everything you read about McLucky uh, tends to make me think he would not have accepted money from Andrew Carnegie. And given the fact that Carnegie refused to give money to his former business partner and mentor um, to rescue his railroad interests, I mean, everything that you know about Carnegie sort of runs against the grain of this story being true. And everything we know about McLucky runs against the grain of McLucky actually accepting this money. But even if it did happen, I think it speaks to Carnegie's overwhelming concern about his public image. I mean, he wants to make sure he gets credit for this. Not so much from McLucky, but from the reading public who's going to read this 20 years after the events happen. What became of Henry Clay Frick after all this? Henry Clay Frick uh, eventually retires, um, and he and Carnegie, uh, you know, he basically lives out his life in Pittsburgh. Um, he had had uh, children relatively late in life, as had Carnegie, um, and so when he dies, his daughter basically becomes sort of steward of his fortune, his mansion, his art collection, and most importantly, his reputation. And so throughout her lifetime, and she lived, I think, until the 1970s, she was incredibly aggressive about preventing any sort of uh, uh, biographies other than ones that repeated the family line, which was Carnegie was the real bastard, um, the workers were demanding things that they didn't deserve, and Frick was just operating you know, within the bounds of normal business. And now you have the Frick Collection, the Art Museum sure. in New York. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, it's interesting because, of course, you know, the great philanthropic organizations of today, the great art collections, the great uh, uh, foundations, the great endowments are all funded with what you could argue is blood money. You know, I think that you know, Carnegie certainly saw himself as a force for social change in giving away his fortune, and that was a good thing. But when you look at how he made that fortune, when you look at the business practices, when you look at the, the deaths and the maimings and the industrial accidents, it really makes you stand back and you know, take stock of you know, what the cost of those social improvements was. Well, did the Homestead Mill then get up and running and go it full was. speed ahead after that? It was. In fact, it ran well into uh, the 20th century. It became uh, an incredibly important uh, component of U.S. steel. Um, but labor unionism in the steel industry was essentially moribund until the New Deal, when for the first time, economic conditions got so bad that people were, you know, the business was sort of 
on its back heel and labor unions could really demand protections. And it's really at that moment that working in the steel industry became sort of a, you know, could provide you a middle class occupation. And that was really, you know, sort of Pittsburgh's heyday in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, um, and really laid the basis of a much more equitable distribution of wealth in that city. If you go to Homestead now, is there any evidence that this took place, any sign of the, um, the plant? Yeah, there's actually a very small but incredibly well-run uh, museum to the strike. Um, it's the Rivers of Steel National Historic Site. I would highly recommend going there. Uh, in fact, I worked with its administrator, a guy by the name of Ron Baroff, um, and it's a fantastic place. You can see part of where the Pinkertons tried to ascend the hill. But by and large, um, Homestead has sort, you know, is sort of this, you know, working class mill town that is a, a very quiet suburb of Pittsburgh. And ironically, much of where uh, U.S. Steel was based has now been turned into uh, outlet shops, a Dave and Buster's, that sort of thing. But ironically, they kept some of the smokestacks from the ironworks that were on site. So it's kind of this weird dis disjunction between its industrial past and its more commercial future. Any steel mills in the area now? Um, yeah, I think there's still some remnant of that steel industry. But really, by the 1980s, you know, most of the steel industry in that area had been decimated as the locus of the steel industry moved west into Michigan and you know, other places with greater access to resources and closer to the car industry. Now you said a little earlier in the program you are working on two other books. Yes. What are the topics? So the first book, which will be out in December, is The Bank War, um, which is sort of this epic confrontation between President Andrew Jackson and Nicholas Biddle over the second bank of the United States. And it may seem like this really innocuous topic, but it's it's really what, what builds the, the two-party system in the United States, the second two-party system, the Democrats and the Whigs. It's a showdown over political power. You know, who's going to really run the country? Is it going to be Congress? Is it going to be the president? It's a really fascinating political story, and it is, as you noted earlier, the reason why New York and not Philadelphia is the economic capital of the country. So that's the first book, and then in the spring of next year, my biography of Lincoln's first Secretary of War, Simon Cameron, will be out. The title of that is Amiable Scoundrel. Clint, uh, uh, Cameron it lives up to that title in every way. Let me just say that he is booted out of Lincoln's cabinet in part for corruption, and he ends up uh, involved in a sex scandal at age 80. So it's, a, it's an excellent read. We'll have to have you back for both of those Fantastic. Books. We've been speaking with Paul Cahan. He is the author of this book, The Homestead Strike, Labor, Violence, and American Industry. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.